painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Jocelyn and I have a very special guest today with us um, to talk about all things fecal urgency and fecal incontinence and running. So Susan, Susan Clinton is one of my mentors and graciously agreed to come on the podcast today. So Susan, thank you so much for coming on. And why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be present and talking about this stuff with the two of you. Um, I'm a physical therapist. I've been a PT for about 40 years now. Um, I specialize in uh, women's health, pelvic health, orthopedics, and uh, have a private practice outside of Pittsburgh in the suburbs, um, and also have my own podcast called Tough to Treat as well as a blog that I do with um, Carolyn Van Dicken and Gilletta Belton, uh, The Genius Project. So I'm um, happy to be here and happy to talk. So Susan, can you tell us a little bit, so you do teach a bowel course, I've taken it, it's kind of evolved over the years, so I think I've taken your course twice now. So what got you interested in the GI system? Um, well, what got me interested in the GI system was that uh, when I first became a, when I first started dealing with pelvic health, uh, the first doctor that found me was a, a pelvic pain doctor, somebody who saw a lot of patients with IC. The second group of, of doctors that found me were colorectal doctors. So I started very early on seeing people with primarily colorectal specific diagnoses. So it just, the need uh, started because that's what was walking in the door and it just kind of progressed from there and I've kind of through the pelvic health world as um, looking at the way things uh, interact neurologically um, I also started kind of studying and paying attention to the GI system closer to uh, what happens to it with um, inflammatory effects and how it can influence inflammatory effects as well as the immune system and what that all means for people at different stages in their life or different things that may be going on with them. And I'm kind of a firm believer that if you've got somebody with a urinary problem, whatever it may be, there is a GI driver behind it. So I just always felt like it's kind of the primary issue that really should be looked at um, more than anything else. 
And oftentimes when you can get the GI system to behave a little bit differently or change its pathway a little bit, then you can get the whole person a bit healthier and things to come online a lot easier. I think Jocelyn and I both see that in our practices pretty frequently as well. Mm -hmm. Susan, I hear you in the back of my head whenever someone complains of urinary urgency and I'm like, I hear you check the GI system, check the GI mm -hmm. system. And mm -hmm. when I was newer, I skipped that part. And now it, I'm seeing a lot more success as I clear the bowels, improve mm -hmm. constipation, the person gets better. Their urinary incontinence and their urgency gets a lot better. So thank you for everything You're that you have taught me in the past several years and you didn't even know you were teaching me these things. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start, let's get into talking about uh, fecal urgency and fecal incontinence in runners because that's something that people often ask myself and Jenny. What is something, what do you see in women, particularly in early postpartum, that runners experience like symptom wise as it relates to the GI system? So um, it's kind of a circuitous uh, question and answer. Um, we have to consider the whole system as a whole first and then we can layer the postpartum era on top of it. But um, the literature shows a lot of um, information about fecal urgency and fecal incontinence, particularly in runners. And even it, for people who are high level athletes, it's an issue, especially if they're running long term. Um, the, it, when they looked at triathletes um, across the board, if they were going to have a problem, it was always during the running phase, never during the swimming or biking phase. Um, so runners typically tend to be more at risk for this. And the reason is, is because quite frankly, if you think about it mechanically, everything's being jostled. It just is, you know, where humans are designed to run, we're designed to run and walk over long distances, but that does, but we also have to have a system that's, that's in line and ready to go with it. So when we think about people who are running, um, and I know, and I get it, you know, it's easy, put on your tennis shoes, get out the door and go run. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm in, but if we're having an issue of fecal incontinence or fecal urgency while we're doing it, we have a system that's offline and continuing to run through that is not going to make it better. In fact, it's probably going to make it worse. So some of the big drivers I see for this are uh, sports drinks because of the osmolality of it. Um, it just, and when people are already kind of on the bit of dehydrated and rather than hydrating often with water, they turn to a sports drink to kind of, you know, replace minerals and do this stuff. Well, when you have a system that is already, you know, offline a little bit like that, and you add those types of liquids in, all it does is flood the urinary system. It bypasses the GI system completely. So they don't get any kind of um, benefit from doing that. And in fact, it kind of increases the pools of water out of the GI system, which can make the GI system a lot more irritable. And when we have irritable, irritability in that GI system, it's not going to do as well. So we can get the urgency, like the feeling that I need to go all the time, or we can get the incontinence. And one of the things that I always tell people, there is a true functional uh, uh, GI diarrhea, but for the most part, um, until proven otherwise, I would have to say people are constipated. And a lot of the fecal incontinence you see is washout around impacted stool. 
And that's where that irritability comes in. So you have somebody who's a runner who's somewhat constipated and um, they have, you know, all the jo you know, jostling and jaggling and stuff of their GI system going on. And so the, the stool may not move down and come out, but all of the, mu all of the mucus and the, the stuff, the chyme and all of the things that the GI system produces is going to come, you know, spilling out around it. And you can have the strongest pelvic floor in the world and you're not gonna stop the Mississippi River. It's just not gonna happen. You know, the sludge will come out. And, um, you know, and so if you've got irritability of the system while you're doing this, then it really is, it's gonna be very, very difficult to control. And that's why I always say, may need to back up a little bit and let's find out where, what's actually happening in that GI system. Is constipation actually occurring? Or the other big driver for this is um, a lack of balance in their autonomic nervous system. And what I mean by that is that you have people who are living um, in a pretty cortisol rich environment. And for those of you who are listening that don't know what that means, that means that you're living with a high response to stress all the time. And so our hormones change and we have to produce more cortisol to keep up. And what ends up happening is that tends to break down the GI system. And because it, it, if we're living in a system that is responding to stress, we have part of our nervous system telling our GI system that we don't need it to work right now. So it tends to go, you know, it, it falls into kind of the, you know, that, that whole thing like we're never resting and digesting. So we're going from maybe like a really busy, you know, life, uh, which is busy all the time to a really kind of high powered, uh, uh, you know, um, running with your hair on fire, you know, Mach 5 with your hair on fire type exercise program. And there's never any chance for the system to ever jet down. And so oftentimes we'll have these kinds of things get expressed when we're really in that, that, that higher um, exercise type mode. So, and what I mean by that, it's not that I don't want people to run, I do. And if they're running, I'm all in with them, but they're gonna need to find balance in their exercise. Um, they're going to have to have periods of their time in their days or in their weeks where they're doing something that's different, that is going to balance and bring up the, the part of their nervous system that is calming, relaxing, and soothing so that they can handle the stresses of the running. And most of the time when I see people who are runners, that's all they do. They don't do anything else. They, uh, you know, unless they're doing a triathlon, you know, or something like that, or, you know, or they're trying to do a Tough Mudder or something else, but that's all they're doing. They're doing high intensity exercise all the time, and they're never, ever, ever getting the system to change and change over. So with that in mind, when we think about the postpartum female, here we have somebody who has gone through huge hormonal transitions, um, is probably still breastfeeding, or, or pumping and, and supplementing or whatever. So there's a huge hormonal transitions going on. And um, the exercise that they're choosing to do, which again, I totally understand because it's easy. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do anything. Your support partner, significant other comes in the door and you can put on your shoes and go out the door. And, um, but the, the, what I see in women who are, who are running um, is that, they may be starting off trying to run too far, too fast, too soon. And they need to give their bodies a chance to kind of catch up. So I'm always, and it's a human thing. Um, when people go back to the gym for the first time and they haven't been there in three years, what do they do? 
well, the last time I was here, I was bench pressing 140 pounds and I was deadlifting 110 pounds. Well, they haven't been to the gym in three years, but they still think that that's where they should be. You know, so people who haven't run and maybe they ran through their pregnancy until like maybe the seventh or eighth month and then they didn't run. So now it's been three or four months since they've run. And instead of going out and walking and, and getting into it and moving and starting to do walk runs and begin to build yourself up like you do in the very beginning, um, they go out and just try to do another four mile run and then they wonder why they're in trouble. So, and then the other part of that is they're not sleeping. Um, <laughs> they've got a new human in their life, whether they have other kids or not, there's still an additional human added to the mix. Um, many of them may be trying to work or trying to go back to work or working or, or really dealing with a very full household at home, whatever it may be, but their, their time and their ability to self-care is being stretched to the limit. And um, when we're not sleeping and we're not really, you know, getting the kind of rest or the kind of, you know, good nutrition or things that we need during the day to take care of ourselves because we've got these other demands on our life then we really don't have anything in the tank that's gonna support us for running. And we have to think about our GI system as our big immune system. And if it's in trouble, it's going to express itself at the height of when we need it the most to be the most secure. So that's when we run into those kinds of things. Finally, mechanically, there is such a thing, we talked about jostling up of the, the GI system. There is um, a phenomenon called um, a sequel slap. And what that means is that the ascending colon, which isn't adhered down into the system very strongly, has a lot of mobility to it. And when we run, it bounces up and down off of the hip muscles. It just does. It just kind of not the back wall of the, the back of the abdomen. And, um, you know, for some people who have a tendency towards irritability or sensitivity in their nervous system, that can definitely be an issue. And because that's going to create a permeability problem as well as an irrit irritation to the mucous membrane and to the structures of the, of the colon. And that can create a lot of fast transit movement of stuff that hasn't been able to form stool yet. So in the ascending colon, it's all kind of a mixture of stuff. And we don't start forming stool until that stuff starts moving through the rest of the colon. So what we end up having because of that irritability of that piece of the colon being slapped up and down onto the back wall is that we end up getting kind of a fast transit or a fast moving of that, of that material through the colon and it never really has a chance to, to get still, have the water you know, absorbed from it and really build the stool that they need you know, to be able to have a, a good bowel movement. Mm -hmm. So you end up getting kind of this fast transit junk moving all the way through and it's really hard to uh, stop that when it happens. So Susan, with this being such a multifactorial system, how do you begin to peel apart the pieces? So if somebody's in front of you and they're presenting with this problem, do you typically find that they have components of all of them or how do you start to decide what the actual problem is and what you're going to explore? So you have to get to the foundational pieces because just treating the symptoms isn't gonna be enough. Um, but for just the sake of, of um, making this flow a little bit better, symptom management is key. So if they're having this happen, I wanna know when it's happening. Like, does it start within five minutes of running? Or is it, like, when does it start? So you might wanna like start looking at, 
until we can get the rest of your system on board, what we need to do is make sure that we're not running into this, you know, running through this all the time. And that takes some bargaining. If they're getting ready to do a race, it may be like, well, then let's start after the race. Because you're not going to change any, you know, I just, they, I ask them to tell me what they're willing to change at this point. And if they're not, then it's like, well, there's not going to be anything you can do between here and the race, you know. And if you're um, dead set on doing it, I'm with you. We'll just start after. You know, just, but let's take notes of some things while this is going on so that we can have a really good idea of what's beginning to happen here. Um, so I, I like to know when it's happening, because if it's happening like at mile five, then maybe what they need to do is start running, you know, uh, up to like mile four and, you know, maybe take a break and walk for a bit and see how it goes. If they can start resuming running and it doesn't start, then, you know, it may be a rest break that they need, or it may be that uh, three to four miles is enough right now for them until we can build their system up. And so we want to, so I kind of go by dosing by actually what's actually happening. If they're having this happen the minute they step onto the ground or within the first five minutes, then we need to back down to a walking program. And I know people don't like to hear that. It's not that what running's off the table. It's just that we simply have to get the system back online. Because if we don't, you're going to end up with poor performances and you're never going to do well. And in fact, you may stop running because you can't run at all without this happening. And we don't want that. Um, most people want to be able to keep doing the things that they want to keep doing, but we want it to be optimal. And that GI system is no longer optimal at that point. So we have to get that system optimal and then put it back together with the other symptom, uh, other systems. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is then uh, what, I, what I want them to do, usually if they haven't been worked up by somebody, um, I, you know, I have some GI docs that I send people to or back to their PCP but I really want a flat plate x-ray I want to just make sure that we're not dealing with constipation. And, you know, if you want to try an intrude way of knowing if you're constipated or not, that's the thing. And here's the thing, people can have bowel movements every day and still be constipated. You know, they think because I have a bowel movement every day, I'm fine. And it's like, but it could be backed up the chain quite a bit and only part of it is coming out. You know, so we really, really want to know um, if that is the issue, because if it is, Let's solve that problem, get that system online, and go a long ways to stopping this, uh, you know, fast-moving junk coming around an impacted stool. What do they do when they check? When do they do certain tests when you send them to a GI doctor to see if they're really backed up? So the the GI doc generally does exactly what we do: feels around on their belly. And we can tell if somebody, you know, is constipated, we can feel it. It's not hard to feel, you know, but it's just, sometimes I think everybody needs to just be sure. And that one flat plate x-ray is excellent, you know, because it'll show oh, yeah. it. It's basically for people who don't know what a flat plate x-ray is, it's just like when you lay down on the x-ray thing and they take a picture of your spine. And oftentimes the radiologist will comment, spine has this and this and this, or looks like this and this, and they'll say, and also presence of fecal stasis. That means that stool is showing up on the x-ray because it doesn't, the x-ray can't go through that thickness. That is the stool. And so you can actually you know, do these x-rays and you can see all kinds of things there, but the stool will be there too. And so then, it's, then I just kind of work with the doc and say, you know, what do you, you know, let's get them cleaned out, you know? But then that's where we come in. It's like, okay, clean out is important. They need to get cleaned out, but now that it's time 
to really take a hard look at what it is that they're doing. And the most simple things that people can do is clean up their diet a bit and get rid of foods that are inflammatory. And we all know what those are. You know, what's, what's it's the top of the list? Sugar. Talk about the postpartum mom. You know, she's tired, so she's drinking coffee. She's eating the kids' sugar food. She's, you know, doing all of those kinds of things. Um, but let's get the sugar out of the diet uh, because that can be really inflammatory to the GI system. And then the other big ones for the GI system are going to be um, dairy and the uh, GMOs that may be in your food. And those, the big ones there are going to be wheat, soy, and corn. So, but you can't eliminate everything at once. You just can't. It's too stressful for the system. And we're trying to de-stress a stress system. So for, for most people, I have them choose. Pick which, what, which one do you think is the biggest one that you're doing a lot of? You know, and most of the time people will either pick uh, dairy or sugar. And that's fine. And once they're armed with that information, then they go and start trying to do it. I warn everybody, though, when you stop eating sugar, it's, you're going to have a, a pretty good response to that. And you're going to make everybody around you as well as yourself pretty cranky. So, you know, with moderation and with style and with grace, you know, just understand that it's a very difficult thing to do. And you may need some support for that. Um, it's just really hard to do because the brain is screaming for sugar because they have built up the, the, the bugs in their gut that live off of sugar. And so when they stop feeding those little bugs, they're going to be screaming at their brain that they want more. And the brain is going to be, it's just, it's hard. It's hard. So, you know, all things in moderation, do the best you can. Don't try to stop everything cold turkey and deny yourself completely. But do understand that, you know, you're, you're going to have a bit of a difficult time because it's really not your brain that doesn't have the willpower. It's the little guys that are living in your gut that are screaming. And you just have to wait till those start to die off. So it's kind of like weed and seed and feed. So what you're doing by stopping sugar is weeding. <laughs> and then what you want to do is put good food in so that you're seeding and then you're feeding by continuing to do this over time. Um, dairy can be inflammatory. So that's also another really good one to do because it increases the uh, mucus flow in the body. And it can also increase the inflammatory response of the GI system and um, make things kind of crummy that way. And that just, dairy can be replaced very easily by other things. In this day and age, we have so many alternatives to dairy that it actually can be a pretty easy thing to do. And even, there's even ice cream. So I've heard it all. I can't do without this. I can't do without that. And it's like, don't do without, replace it with something. Let's, you know, let's crowd out the, 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 the bad foods with the good foods or the evil foods or the foods that are causing you problems with the good food. So, and again, you know, work yourself through it. Just be sure that you're not denying that you're just replacing. So butter can be replaced with coconut oil or ghee. Um, you know, eggs are not dairy. Eggs come from chickens, not from cows. Um, that's always a big question I get. Uh, there's tons of alternative cheeses around. And there are, you know, tons of alternative, uh, uh, you know, um, milk. You know, you've got, uh, you know, lots and lots of them out there on the market now. And it's just a matter of trying and finding what you want and, and what's going to work for you. But again, just take the first, you know, and oftentimes I'll start with somebody. Let's just start with one of the dairy products that you're eating and replace it with something until you get good at that. And then let's replace the next one. And generally, when you make it small, actionable, easy steps, it's much easier to do than trying to just shut down the whole, the whole thing. 
Um, and then people kind of like start going, oh, well, if I can do that, then maybe I'll do this one and this one. And before you know it, they've kind of gotten themselves off of it. The second big question I hear from people is how long do I need to do this? And most of the literature out there will say, um, you know, to just kind of eliminate stuff for 30 days. But the GI system is very slow to change lanes, completely slow to change lanes. And it really needs six months. It really does. You, you put things back in too fast and it's, it's just not enough time to kill off the bugs, get new bugs growing and get everything kind of set, set and stabilized. So it really, really, really needs to have um, more time. So I tell people, you know, it's just like pick one and really ride the train to the end. Don't get on and off the train every 30 days and try something else. It's too confusing. Your colon is the slowest thing we have to change lanes. You know, it just doesn't believe you for a long time. It took a long time to get to this position. It's not going to change you overnight. However, they can get rid of some of these inflammatory foods and they'll start noticing a difference almost immediately, which is like really great. I think your strategy of replacement is so important, and I just want to emphasize that to the listeners. Um, and that's not just for foods. You talk about it in terms of exercise and movement. Um, one analogy that I just like to bring up, and Susan, maybe you can uh, expand upon it a little bit more, but you talked about it in one of the classes that I went to, and it really resonated for me, and I've seen that it really resonates with people that I work with. That sometimes, let's say, you know, somebody decides they're going to cut out coffee or they've been to a practitioner that says you just need to cut out coffee. Well, cutting out coffee might not just be cutting out the coffee. You're cutting mm -hmm. out all of the social interactions surrounding mm -hmm. that coffee. So mm -hmm. having something to replace it with, whether it's tea or water, or, you know, whatever drink of choice. Um, if getting coffee at four o'clock every day means you get to spend 30 minutes sitting with your two best friends just talking about the day, then having a replacement can be a very helpful strategy. So can you talk to that a little bit more just about what replacement looks like in a more global sense? Yeah, um, you know, uh, what we want to do is we want to create a culture of um, abundance and not one of, of denial. And because when we deny ourselves something, then the, the human tendency is to want it even more. <laughs> it's just the way we're put together. And so we have to look at the whole surrounding things like, why am I, you know, this is what we all sit down and eat at dinner. And if I'm changing what I'm eating at dinner, then everyone's going to, you know, I'm rocking the kind of the, the tribal boat here. But if I can replace what I'm having so that they can still have what they're having, and it's not that big of a deal for me to replace it, or we can still have the same thing, but we're doing a little bit of a replacement in there that doesn't alter the taste of the food then we can you know, go a long ways to um, making things a lot more palatable for people. Uh, you know, so replacing is, is really kind of a concept that you wanna think about. When people talk to me about some of the things that they're doing, I ask a lot of questions about it. Tell me about why that time of the day. Well, it's because that's when I'm really tired. Well, tell me what else is going on. Why do you go there? You know, and, and they don't realize that the fact is that they're meeting their friends or they're, you know, that that's their only quiet time or they just really have 30 minutes to sit and answer emails at that coffee shop. And, you know, so it's become kind of a thing. It's, you know, they, they built a ritual around whatever this is. And so when we're asking people to make changes, we're asking people to change rituals too. And that's where it gets really hard. So what we want to do is what can you place within that ritual that you're doing? And rituals are as easy as any kind of habits we have. Brushing our teeth is a ritual. And most people are brushing their teeth. So, and they figure out how to do it and it's good for them. 
and they don't make a big fuss about it. And in fact, they're like motivated to do it. But you take that away for whatever reason, and they're going to be, you know, like that. That's kind of a ritual for them. It's like maybe that's the trigger to their system to start slowing down to get ready for sleep. You know, so we have those trigger events too that are part of it. So really just not stopping things just to stop it, but really trying to say, what can I replace this with? Um, you know, people who drink a lot of caffeine during the day, maybe we'll just start with which one of those caffeine, caffeinated drinks can you change to something else? And so that, you know, and well, I don't like the taste of water. Well, what else could you do? Let's, let's brainstorm and look at a bunch of alternatives out there that aren't loaded with sugar and caffeine and see just one of them, which one you pick the one and let's get consistent with that one and get that going so that we don't interrupt their ritual of whatever it is that they're doing. They're just replacing something within the ritual. And that can be quite helpful and also manageable. And then it's like, okay, now you've gotten successful with that one over the last couple of weeks. What's the next one you're going to do? You know, and before you know it, they kind of have started making some changes across the board. They're not drinking nearly as much of, of the stuff that they were doing. And so that can be very, very helpful as far as making those differences. And um, having some good recipes on hand for people or, you know, so that it's not a real, in, the, in this day and age, it's so easy because all you have to do is Google uh, replace butter with for such and such a dish. And 17 recipes come up saying, you know, here, this is how you do it. You do you use this or try this or actually add this spice in and it really, you know, makes it taste like this again. And, you know, so there's a lot of support out there, but I think the idea is like really picking the one piece of that if they can't wrap their head around the whole of it, um, you know, picking the one piece of it and really beginning to replace it. And that can make a huge difference in their ability to move forward. So one thing you kind of segued very nicely into it when you said that maybe teeth brushing is a trigger to the system that it's time to start unwinding with mm -hmm. the fecal urgency. You talked about that some of that can be triggered by an overactive autonomic system or kind of that stress response. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about some different stress reduction strategies? But also, you um, talked about a book, The Upside of Stress, mm -hmm. um, in your course, and that stress is not always a bad thing. We can have different stress responses. So mm -hmm. I certainly don't want to give the message that we don't want any stress in the life, but I think sometimes um, when I ask people, like, what can you do that's relaxing for you? they've never relaxed or they feel like they haven't relaxed so they don't even know what that is. So where do you start that conversation? Sure, so the, the book you're mentioning is by Kelly McGonigal um, and she has a new one out about the joy of movement too. Um, she's an excellent author, she's a PhD and a great uh, researcher and she's a great storyteller about research. Um, and the, the, the story and the upside of stress is that stress is a normal part of life. We're all gonna have it. We've, we've been on this earth for 3 million years and we've had all kinds of different stressors. Climate change is not new, um, but it has prompted humans to move and to migrate because we have the unique ability as a species to change our environment. Um, other species don't have that, that unique ability that, that humans have had. So we've dealt with stress of not having enough food, you know, in a famine situation to, you know, uh, global climate change. So we're used to stress, stress is important. Um, and it's a way that we begin to change, you know, so it helps us in the long run as, you know, our tribe and our species. Um, it's our response to stress that's the problem. 
you know, when we have a negative or a, uh, you know, response to the stress that we have in our life, which is that, oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't get this done. I, you know, I have so much to do and, you know, blah, 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 that, that whole thing. Um, and we continue that in that way, or, oh, I have so much stress. This is terrible. Like even the thought of having stress is terrible, um, can have profound effects onto the system, especially the GI system. Um, or we can look at stress as a challenge. Okay, this is, this is a bit, there's a lot going on here. What am I going to do and how am I going to respond to this? And so that's a positive response to stress. And the, what they looked at in the research is that the people with a positive response to stress actually outlived the people who had, for sure, the negative response to stress, but even the people who had stress but didn't think too much about it. But the positive response is what triggered the system to become more resilient over time. And so when we think about that and we think about what we're trying to do, this is why I talk about the elimination diet, that you don't want to do so many things at once because it throws you into a negative response. And that's not going to be good for the system. We want to have that positive response so that the system can begin to change. In a positive response to stress, we may have to look at all of the things we're doing and we have to start letting go of a few things. And one of them may be, I'm exercising, but what am I doing to also change my, my system as far as maybe I need some more flexibility, maybe I need some more quiet in my life. And there's a thousand things we can do. You don't have to go do yoga if you don't like yoga. You don't, you know, you can go to a quiet stretch class. You can actually, in five minutes a day, this has been um, done by research, which is really very cool. Five minutes of a quiet practice can change your stars, literally. And that's all you need is five minutes every day of an intentional quiet, whether you're doing a, a guided meditation, whether you're doing the quieting meditation yourself, whether you're just doing breathing, um, prayer, whatever it is, that quiet five minutes of that focused time consistently over time in six weeks can, re can create much more resilience in people and decrease that burned out feeling. You know, that like I'm maxed out to the, you know, to the max type feeling and can change people's like physical and hormonal response to it. So that's a very, very easy thing for people to do. If you have nothing else to do, find five minutes to you know, uh, listen to a guided meditation. I mean, we've got, what do we have? Headspace. We've got all of those apps that are, you know, on our phones, you know, just turn it on five minutes. I think there's one that just, you know, just reminds you to breathe, you know, for five minutes, but it's, but it's time that you're putting intention on and you're doing it consistently. So it's like brushing your teeth. If you brush your teeth every day, you're going to have much better dental checkups than if you don't. If you do this for five minutes every day, you're going to have a much better response to stress than if you don't. This is why meditation works for people who really get into a little bit longer meditative practices. But even meditation for 15 minutes a couple of times a day has been shown to be profoundly effective. So you don't have to spend hours of time at it or take you know, significant time out of your day to do it. All you need to do is get consistent with it. And that can really change that flight or fight response and really help you bring your, your levels, your response levels down lower so that your system has a chance to relax and to let go. And when you do that, then you can rest and digest easier. And you're gonna be a better runner, for sure. <laughs>
So Susan, thank you for sharing all of these pearls with us today. I think we could talk to you for much longer, but we want to be respectful of your time. So you mentioned you have your own podcast. So um, if the audience wants to listen to your podcast, which I highly recommend, it's fantastic. Um, it, it's geared, I feel like, a little bit more for the clinician, but I mean, most of it's very digestible, I think, for somebody that's not in physical therapy or in the healthcare um, arena. So definitely take a listen. But what are all the ways that people can contact you and learn more from you? So uh, you guys will probably have my contact information in your show notes. Um, but you can contact me um, at Embody Physiotherapy and Wellness. Uh, it's uh, www.embody-pt.com. Uh, that's my website. And all my contact information is on there. Um, you can find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram at sclintonpt, and uh, I'd love for you guys to reach out to me, hook up with me, ask me questions, and uh, let's see if we can find you some answers. The other, the other one is the Genius Project, and the, I'd like to, to give that out there too, because I know you have a lot of listeners who have pain, um, and that is for anybody who is navigating the world of pain. Um, it's a free resource. It's www.thegeniusptproject.com. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Susan. And again, her podcast is called Tough to Treat, and her co-host is Erica Mello, who is also a physical therapist out of mm -hmm. New York, um, very knowledgeable, just like Susan. So, Susan, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Susan. Mm -hmm. See ya. Yeah.